Open Forward's self-help school is a training program and community designed to help you manage your stress and build your confidence. Get compelling know-how to help you enjoy life again and discover scientifically proven coping strategies to improve your concentration and stop you feeling so overwhelmed. When you join, you'll get instant access to advanced training to help you stay psychologically healthy. Ask questions in regular Q&A coaching sessions. Access expert guides, including the Good Sleep Guide for Hardworking Parents and discuss important topics in the Members Only Forum. Go to www.openforwards.com. That's www.openforwards.com. Welcome to episode number 16 of Self-Help Satnav, the show where we talk relationships, work, parenting, mental health and well-being. And I interview some of the world's experts in using self-help to address these areas of your life. I'm Jim Lucas, show host and founder of Open Forwards Limited. And in this episode, we're going to be looking at the topic of self-criticism. Are you someone who struggles with self-criticism? Do you often have a go at yourself? Or do you expect too much of other people? Self-criticism is the act of beating yourself up with words. Your mind can get busy saying things like, You're so stupid. Why did you do that, you numpty? Or, sort it out. You're no good at anything. A self-critical mind, whilst present in all of us, rarely makes anyone feel better. In fact, it has the opposite effect. When you criticise other people, they feel hurt, upset or angry. That's why many of us try to avoid it as much as possible. But how well do you avoid criticising your own decisions? Not so well, I guess. Many people have a tendency to judge their own behaviour more harshly than that of others. In this episode, I get to speak with one of the world's experts on how to reduce self-criticism. She has written several books, including The Compassionate Mind Approach to Building Self-Confidence and Compassion-Focused Therapy for Dummies. She's a consultant clinical psychologist who lives and works in the southwest of England, and she's a founding member of the Compassionate Mind Foundation. And, alongside Paul Gilbert, she has helped to develop Compassion-Focused Therapy. Her name, of course, is Dr. Mary Welford. Paul Gilbert, she has helped to develop. Yeah, thank you very much. So let's get straight into this first question, which is, what's the most useful self-help tool that you've put to work in your own life? Um, The most important self-help tool I've found is motivating myself out of self-compassion instead of out of self-criticism. Okay, so what does that look like? Can you give me an example? Well, I suppose it's, it might be helpful to just think about the self-criticism side of it first, because I think that's familiar to a lot of us. 
when things are not going so well, um, when we've had a disappointment, a setback, we've made a mistake, we're quite prone to tell ourselves off and beat ourselves up about it, call ourselves, you know, an idiot, waste of space, stupid, etc., etc. Mm. And we we tend to do those in situations, and we just kind of hardly ever think about what effect that has on us. Um, and in actual fact, it can have quite a considerable detrimental effect to us. In contrast, motivating ourselves out of self-compassion. So it's about, you know, talking to ourselves and relating to ourselves in a supportive way can actually help us when we've had a setback, when things haven't gone so well, when we've made a mistake. Instead of calling ourselves stupid um, and an idiot, we actually maybe say, you know what, that wasn't your finest hour or that wasn't so great. Let's think about how you could do that differently. So it's quite a significant difference uh, in the way that I certainly will motivate myself uh, myself these days. Um, often people actually think that maybe being self-compassionate would involve saying, oh, there, there, never mind. But it also means that you're holding yourself to account, but you're holding yourself to account gently and kindly and looking forward rather than going back and causing yourself, calling yourself names, etc. Okay. So it sounds like you're saying what you say to yourself is quite important. Yeah. It, it, it's not, it's, but it's not just what you say, it's how you say it to yourself. So... One of the things that I used to do, for example, in the past is quite commonly I'd call myself an idiot. So I, if I did something wrong, I'd, the, the turn of voice would be, you idiot, idiot, stupid, why have you done that? It's not so much these days that I do at times call myself an idiot, but I'm more likely to say, oh, you idiot. And then think and support myself about making some changes or dealing with the situation in a more productive and helpful way. Right. Okay. So how you say it sounds like it could be more important. Yeah. So it's the, the tone in which you say it. So it's not just the it's just not just the content, but it's actually the tone. With self-criticism, often the tone is quite a, a bullying term. That's the relationship. It's quite a threat-based relationship that we have with ourselves. Whereas with self-compassion, it's more of a su supportive relationship. Um, in many different therapies, they talk about what would you say to a best, you know, kind of like a close friend if they were going through this situation. What would you say to a family member if they were going through this situation? And I think that is really, really important, but it's not only that, it's how we say it and the type of relationship we have with ourselves when we're saying it. Right. That makes sense. That makes me think about the way I talk to my children, you know, mm -hmm. if they're upset or if they're kind of having a meltdown, I, I yeah. might speak to them more softly. If I can catch myself, I don't always do that, but... I know deep down that the way I speak to them makes makes a big difference. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and also, you know, the way that we say it can turn the same phrase from something that's actually quite undermining to something that's actually quite supportive as well. Um, 
And I think it does have massive, you know, ramifications for me in my personal life. So with this knowledge, an example would be, um, I don't know whether anybody else is like this, but at the, during the course of the day, there'll be many different things that I um, would hope to do. And there's certain things that I enjoy and there's certain things that I uh, don't enjoy so much. And the things that I don't enjoy so much, I tend to avoid. Now, if I start off a day and I think, come on, Mary, you've got to make that phone call. Why haven't you done that letter? Or, for goodness sake, you know, just get on with it. You've got to do it today. What I'll often find is that I'll find other things to fill my day. And then at the end of the day, I realize I haven't done those things. But it's kind of now five o'clock and I think, oh, I'll do it tomorrow. In contrast, when I notice, you know, come like... Uh, at the start on the start of the day you know when I've got a big day coming up and when I notice I've got a big day coming up and a lot of things to do what I will do is I will evoke a my compassionate mind so a more supportive frame of mind and I will ask myself the question what is it helpful for me to do today what would be helpful for my well-being what things would it be useful for me to do and just talking to myself in that way actually means that often the first thing that I do is get you know buckle down and do the thing that I'm avoiding and that's so much better for my for the rest of the day um so in in a lot of ways actually talking to yourself in this way is not just supportive it actually gets things done and it actually works to prevent the distress that we often accumulate or deal with the stress that we often accumulate for ourselves Right. Okay. So I can see some big differences there about what you're saying about the benefits. I, I read a, a paper recently by Kristen Neff, who's a, mm. she's a, a big compassion researcher in the US, isn't she? Yeah. Yeah. She wrote a paper a few years ago called Self-Compassion in Clinical Practice, where she summarized lots of the research data around self-compassion. Um, and some of the things that came up that was that it, it builds resilience, that people will have better adjustment after a marital breakup, that people are less afraid of failure and more likely to try again when they fail. Um, Absolutely. And Kristen has got some great YouTube clips on uh, selfcompassion.org. Uh, self and there's one in particular that I use quite a lot in clinical practice, which is the self-compassion versus self-esteem one. I think it's part five of a, a range of different ones that she uses. And she makes the point really, really clearly in that is the sense that actually self-compassion um, steps in exactly when you need it most. It's when you've had a setback. It's when things go don't go so bad, uh, don't go so well. Um, that's when it steps in. Uh, and that's when it's really, really helpful to us. Right, yeah. So how easy do you think it is for people to kind of do this? Is it, is it something that comes quite naturally to a lot of people to be self-compassionate? I think one of the biggest hurdles, and this you know, draws on the work of Paul Gilbert, um, is the fact that often what we will do is we believe that we deserve to bully ourselves. We do believe that we don't deserve to treat ourselves with kindness and support um, 
So shame and self-criticism can inhibit that. Sometimes it's just lack of awareness of what we're doing uh, and the difficulties that it can bring up um, can actually be problematic. Um, and sometimes it's, it's often the belief that in some way self-criticism is helpful to us. So we often talk about um, three steps. So number one, becoming aware of what you're doing to yourself. So just noticing next time or that you have had a set, setback, something hasn't gone so well, or maybe something that's happened recently. And just have a think about how you're talking to yourself, what you're saying. So that's step one, which is becoming aware of it. Step two is thinking, if I had a magic pill and I took it and it meant that I was never going to be critical of myself again, what would I fear? And people often fear that if they weren't going to be critical of themselves again, they would become uh, arrogant, they would set themselves up for a fall, they would um, make mistakes, they'd become grandiose, they'd upset people, other people would get the boot in, so they might as well get the boot in first. So often people feel as if there's good reasons to do it, so therefore they maintain it. So then step three is to think about how helpful it is. And we use lots of different scenarios, you know, like you were saying about how would you speak to a child if you had two teachers, one that was really critical and one that was very compassionate, which teacher would you choose for your child? So it's waking people up to this idea that it's not very helpful to us and it's actually really, really undermining and there is an alternative. And it's about building that alternative. So it's not about just don't criticize yourself. It's about building a different relationship so that hopefully you can move to that instead as you start to see the benefits of it. That's really interesting. And, and, and really simply put as well, that second step about what would I fear if I stopped being so self-critical is really interesting to me. The, what you're saying is that people have learned to be self-critical like that it's it's been they, they perceive it to be purposeful mm. yeah people people believe that you know as i say it stops them being arrogant it it means that they push themselves it you know make sure that they have high standards etc um but in actual fact Certainly for me and many of the people that I see, what it actually does is it makes us more prone to withdraw from things, to avoid from things, or to confront things in an unhelpful way. So it's, it's about holding in mind the fact that people do this because they feel as if it is helpful to them. And it's about recognizing that, you know, people aren't, aren't intentionally doing their own heads in. They're doing it potentially because they think it's a benefit to them. So it's about really being curious about how that works. Re create an environment in which you can look at whether it is working for them uh, or not, and then giving people an alternative that has all of the benefits, but none of the drawbacks. Yeah, yeah. Okay. 
So Mary, how did you first kind of get into this understanding and this way of working to do with building self-compassion? Well, I was working, um, I studied in Manchester, which is well known for being very uh, CBT, which is cognitive behaviour therapy. And I was involved in lots and lots of trials and really exciting research where people often made very good gains during the course of um, trialing that modality of therapy, that type of therapy. However, I became increasingly aware that it wasn't for everybody that some people at the end of therapy had done well, but then during the course of between follow-ups, so we would follow them up for six months, uh, three months, six months, 12 months. If significant life events had happened, sometimes they would relapse, you know, and things would go back to um, go backwards. And then there's a whole other group of people who didn't get on to the research trials because they had um, more than one thing going on. So, and the thing is, is that what it seemed to be, the common denominator um, seemed to be time and time again that people experience shame, whether it be about life events, um, you know, who they were or actually coming along for therapy in its, you know, in itself. And they were highly critical of themselves so that when they didn't do so well, either in therapy or subsequently, they really had to go at themselves. And it was, it was really clear to see. And that led me to the work of Paul Gilbert, who um, was working you know, specifically with those individuals who were experiencing high levels of shame and high levels of self-criticism. And through an inordinate amount of research and interviews and you know, real life discussions with people, um, found that actually developing a, a more compassionate relationship with yourself um, was actually a, a beneficial to, thing to do and an antidote to self-criticism and shame, which we know underpins so many psychological difficulties and maintains them. And I suppose that, you know, through that work then is the extension of it, which is not only being self-compassionate, but it's being compassionate towards others and it's about receiving compassion. So it's you know i would i would still do cbt um i come to behavior therapy i do love it i think a lot of people get a lot out of it however i now practice a much more warmed up version of it where i'm looking at shame and you know self-criticism um but mostly in my work i'm using what is now termed compassion focused therapy um so and defining compassion as being a sensitivity to distress and a motivation to prevent and alleviate it. Um, and I think it's just important for me to say that because I think a lot of people hear the term compassion and think it's all hearts and flowers and candles and getting your jostics out. But it's actually about being sensitive to our own distress and other people's, which is really hard because often we want to avoid it. Uh, put a lid on things, and then being motivated through, you know, to do something about it, um, and or to prevent it. So it's it's actually um, quite it's a sophisticated, elegant, and quite an intensive way of working, um, which kind of doesn't necessarily it sometimes you know can surprise people. So people coming along can say things like afterwards, I didn't realise it was going to be so tough. 
I didn't realize it was going to be so difficult, but I'm so glad I did it. Right. Yeah. So it, you said something about it. It might put people off that word compassion, but people's experience of it is that it, it's different from, from what that initial perception might be. Yeah. And people, you know, people like Russell Colts, who's in the States, who works with males, uh, well, uh, was predominantly working with males who yeah, identified themselves as having issues with anger. They kind of like sat and thought about the term compassion and they liked the term true strength, which I think is a really, really interesting, you know, thing. And it, it challenges a lot of the assumptions that we make, you know, actually compassionate, being compassionate to ourselves and others is a strength at its ultimate, you know, its true strength, which I really liked uh, and still do like. Hmm. That's a new phrase for me. Let me give that one some thought. But as a, in terms of usefulness of language, you're saying that that's working well for the group of people that he's working with. Yeah, and I, and I think the thing is, is that we there are obstacles for us all out, out there. And, you know, the term compassion, for some people, by virtue of their experiences or how it's portrayed by society, can be a bit tricky but again if you always go back to the definition uh, the definition that we use which is sensitivity to distress of ourselves and others and a motivation to alleviate it actually there's nothing woolly about that um, it's in actual fact a very powerful um, state to be in um, and it's very powerfully motivating as a motivates to motivates us in a helpful direction. Hmm. It, it seems like it's, it's very courageous. To, yes. Yeah. To I, I, I love alleviate it. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that term. I really like that term. Courageous. So you, um, along with Paul set up the mind, the compassion mind, compassionate mind foundation. Yeah, so that was back in, so Paul was, um, you know, has uh, gathers people around him, you know, he's, he's a very sharing, very um, amazing um, psychologist who uh, was working in Derby and started having, you know, understandably, because of who he is, but also because people were finding his work more and more useful. Um, there was a momentum and a group of people who were working in this way and trying to develop the therapy more and to working with other in other environments you know with different age groups etc um, and in 2006 uh, in order to kind of consolidate that work um, a group of us set up the Compassionate Mind Foundation um, or helped Paul set up the Compassionate Mind Foundation. And the strap line, you know, kind of like, or the mission statement is, <clears throat> is um, that it's a scientific understanding and application of compassion. So that's what we're, we're looking at. Um, so that was 2006. We had our first conference. I think it was in 2012. Um, 
So we've been going now for, you know, coming up to uh, 11 years. We have regular conferences now. Um, and I was lucky to be chair of that organization for quite a while, but more recently, um, I've, I'm putting my energies into the work that I now do in schools. Um, so it's the same, the same mission, it's the same type of work, but it's actually um, focusing it on the next generation and of course our teachers who do amazing jobs and teaching assistants, etc. Right. So you're at the school at the moment, I'm aware. And I am. Yeah. And uh, I, was, I was wondering, how, does, how do you facilitate then this compassionate way of working within a school environment? So there's various different ways. Um, I think that usually I, and I work with a, a number of different schools and assist with a number of different schools now. Um, the main one that I'm in is Marine Academy in Plymouth. That's where I'm seated, sat today. Um, but a range of different schools across the UK now are, are looking to develop these ideas. And the thing is, is that I'm a psychologist. I, I don't profess to be a teacher. Um, so what I often start with is coming into a school and I uh, run an inset day for staff. So that is focused on the understanding themselves and their own well-being so it's taking the compassionate perspective towards themselves and each other mm. and with some schools um that you know it's it's more of the staff side that keeps going and i do liaise with and consult with and um, do other work with them with others there is an extension of that to then the children and sometimes to the wider community. So how we do that is we have all sorts of uh, lesson plans. Uh, we have active tutorials. Um, I do run groups um, for some students. Um, we support the staff um, in you know the primary work about how to bring some of these ideas just into lessons into everyday interactions um, you know asking children how are you talking to yourself I think it's one of the most fundamental things if we start asking our children how are you talking to yourself when you've had that setback when you've had we might start to pick up number one those kids that are actually giving themselves a hard time and start teaching them an alternative where um, of talking to themselves um, so it's all it's multifaceted and it also depends on the the school the types of stuff they're doing um, and the teachers are often very very creative and have lots of ideas about how to bring things into lessons so I'm learning as a psychologist I'm learning so much from from you know working alongside and, and supporting the you know the educators um about how to bring this in with the kids it sounds like a great project to be involved in you sound like you're really enjoying it yeah i think you can't you can't help but enjoy it because you see i think you know there is something about within a school environment what better environment to learn about yourself and i think one of the most tricky things is when we don't understand ourselves and we don't like ourselves or we don't like aspects of ourselves and we give ourselves a hard time. So if we can learn about ourselves and learn about each other, 
maybe we're less critical of ourselves. Maybe we're actually less critical about each other. Mm. Um, and the idea of getting in there early is, you know, very attractive. Um, so that actually there's less likelihood that people end up later on uh, coming to see somebody like me. Yeah, yeah. So are you pioneering this kind of thing in the UK, do you think? Yeah, I mean, there are, there are some amazing stuff um, around, you know, kind of like there's obviously the mindfulness in schools mm. um, uh, initiative. And, you know, interestingly, they're uh, talking about the fact that actually if mindfulness doesn't come with an openness for compassion, it's less effective. So there's, there's all sorts of different ways in which people are emphasizing compassion. Um, there are groups in the States that are looking at it. I suppose I'm coming at it specifically from a compassion-focused therapy uh, side of things. Um, but I'm loving learning uh, from other pe people who are doing slightly different approaches. Um, and I think the more that we open ourselves to the fact that, you know, or, you know, and trying to get common language and trying to um, work with other people doing similar things. Actually, we start then to have more, sim if, if, if interventions in schools, for example, are effective, by definition, they should get more and more similar. Mm. I, of course, of course, wear the hat of compassion-focused therapy and bringing, you know, the principles that have been set out and the distinctive features that have been set out you know, within, from Paul Gilbert, et cetera. Um, I'm bringing that in, but there's other people who are bringing in more of a Kristen Ness uh, side of things. There's other people who are bringing it in more through mindfulness. It's great to see so much emphasis on compassion. And then what we can do is hopefully all learn from each other. Yeah, so you're all influencing each other. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I just think, unfortunately, you know, uh, it, and I can, I can often understand why when, you know, as a psychologist and somebody who's worked in research, you know, in order to get the, the money to run the trials, et cetera, there is a competitiveness. Hmm. And in order to evidence effectiveness, you're all, always, you know, you're often pitching, you know, one type of approach against another. And it can often breed um, competitiveness, whereas... And I understand that, and I, I understand the reasons for it. But I also do think that if we can balance the need to evidence this with an actually openness to learn from each other and a recognition of what each group are doing and trying to extract what's working and maybe, you know, leave the stuff that's not working, that, that would be better. Yes, yes. Wow. I mean, that sounds all brilliant, Mary. Um, are there any other things that you're working on at the moment that you, that you want to share? Well, I'm, I'm very excited about the fact that I'm, we are um, now writing a book. Um, so my first book, which was uh, Compassionate Mind Approach to Building Self-Confidence, is aimed at adults. And... I suppose working with younger people uh, now, I've kind of been adapting that to working with younger people. And then 
I've developed lots of tools and resources and all sorts of different things um, that are all somewhere um, chaotically organized on my uh, laptop and desktop. <laughs> and, you know, they've been, you know, I've, I've just learned, I've trialed things, I've uh, picked different things and, uh, and worked and developed stuff. And what I'm doing now is working with um, students at another school um, that we are pulling all of that information together for a book for um, younger children. So we're aiming at the children who are maybe year, year six, so before they make transition into secondary school, uh, year seven and year eight. So we've got working groups and we've got a, an amazing um, girl who's illustrating it, uh, who's a student at the school and Hopefully, we're going to um, be, and we're doing it through self-funding the publication of it. Um, so we're excited about that, and it feels very right for me to be doing that in conjunction with um, young people, and you know, capitalising on the energy that they bring and the insights and that sort of thing. So I'm very excited about that one, <laughs> as you might tell. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And so um, for, for grown-ups listening who want to get started on uh, learning more about how they can build self-compassion, uh, you yeah. mentioned the book that you'd written before. Do you, think, do you think getting a book like that is a good place to start? Yeah, I think, I, I suppose that for me, um, I'm dyslexic and I do find reading books cover to cover um a little bit daunting and mm. i so i quite like either things that you can dip in and out of or i like watching youtube and ted talks and things like that and i use an awful lot of those in um in therapy and um in class and all sorts of different things so i wrote um, compassion focused therapy for dummies which is um you know the dummies range of things and what i what i like about that is the format of the book allowed me to be quite chatty put quite a bit of myself into the book because actually you know one of the things when i'm reading a book is i need to connect a little bit with the person who's written it yeah. Um, and it's kind of, um, my other half said to me, it's a bit like one of those books that you have at the side uh, in the toilet, which I thought was really, really flattering. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, Very nice, thank you. But he said, no, no, you know, you can just open up a page and you can read the text box and it gives you a little bit of an anecdote or a little. So I think I, I obviously wrote that in a way that suits how I view the material. And also how I read. Um, so there's that. So there's CFT for dummies, which is a great kind of start. And I would also say for, you know, for all therapists who are learning an approach, learning it from the inside out, you know, applying it to yourself first right. um, is a good way. So it's a good way of learning for therapists as well as, you know, uh, anybody else. And then, as I say, if you put in to YouTube, Paul Gilbert's name. I think you can now watch something like 12 hours with us, Paul Gilbert doing talks, right. you know, that have now been shared. Um, you've got some amazing people. If you put compassion focused therapy in, 
it will come up with all sorts of different talks and different different things and of course the compassionate mind website is an amazing resource um, of materials um, audio sound files they've got the worksheets from my book in there so there's lots of things on that website so I would I would suggest you know picking picking one of those different options I mean that's fab there's lots to choose from isn't it and not not too much effort to find something of use yeah yeah and I think that's the thing it's it's a bit like when I first did my, uh, I went on a retreat and I had, you know, a number of different people taking us through different exercises. And what I realized was some people, the pace really suited me. Some people, the pace didn't suit me. Some people, the, you know, there was something that was just clicked. And now with all of these resources that are out there and different people kind of giving a slightly different lens to the same material there's a you know there is a lot of stuff out there and it's about it's like having a a taster menu you know just dip in and dip out see what you like um and ultimately if it's helpful consider using it right yeah great and if anyone wants to get in touch with you mary what's the best way to do that well i'm on twitter so i'm kind of that is often uh, some people will kind of like get in contact with me through that so I'm at Dr. Mary Welford on Twitter. And then my email address is mary.welford, and it's single L, so W-E-L-F-O-R-D, at compassioninmind.co.uk. That's very long. Didn't think of that when I <laughs> set it up, that it would be such an onerous. <laughs> uh, but it kind of, hopefully it kind of explains what I'm, what, you know, I'm advocating. Yes, it's literal, yeah, yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been uh, wonderful. No worries at all. Thank you for giving me an opportunity to, you know, to share stuff that I'm passionate about because the more sharing we do, I think the better. Thank you, Mary, for joining me. And I really enjoyed this episode today. A chance to really get into this subject of self-criticism, which I know is a problem for so many of us. You can find access to lots of resources on the show notes page down the bottom including links to her books, The Compassionate Mind Foundation, and how to get hold of Mary on Twitter. Thanks for joining me, and I'll see you next month for episode number 17.